Do not say, why is it that the former days were better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask about this. Why shouldn't we say that? Why is that not wisdom? Well, that's certainly true. God is in control, control of both times, the past and the present. But there is another reason. Yeah, Judy. Right, it presupposes that the past was better, and the reality is, it wasn't. The past, generally, is not better than the present. It only seems like it was better from a distance. Thereby, it is not wise to ask that question. Human beings have a strange tendency to forget or misrepresent the past, often by remembering only the good and forgetting the bad or simply by never learning about the past and remaining ignorant of what problems existed in the past. And because there often seems to be so much trouble in the present, and very little to no trouble in the past, the present seems terrible, and the past seems wonderful, peaceful, even a golden age. And perhaps you think this way about your past, certain times in your past, maybe your childhood. Or maybe the, our nation's past. Oh, we used to be a great nation, but now... Or maybe you think this way about the Christian past. Indeed, many Christians see the early church as the golden age to which we must try to desperately return. But as Solomon says elsewhere in Ecclesiastes, there is nothing new under the sun, and that the centuries go by, but the world fundamentally does not change. The people of the world fundamentally do not change. So far from a golden age, the time of the early church was a time of many challenges and problems. Even many of the same ones that we deal with today. Now yes, the early church was a time of great gospel expansion. Many Christians faithfully standing for their Lord amid deadly persecution. But as we've already seen in past lessons, it was also a time of massive compromise. It was a time of the paganization of worship practices. And it was a time of serious heresy. And heresy is going to be the subject of our lesson today. This is lesson five in our series on early church history, early heresies. Of course, when I speak of heresy, I am speaking of serious and dangerous departures from orthodox or right teaching. Departures from the faith once and for all handed down to the saints by Christ's apostles in the scripture. As we look into this topic, I want to consider three main questions. These will be throughout each of the things we look at today. What were the early heresies? How did the true church respond to them? And what can we learn for our own struggle on behalf of the truth today? Now, spoiler alert. We're going to find out that many of the heresies we see today are just repackaged versions of the same heresies that afflicted the early church and even the New Testament church. And that means that how our brethren previously stood faithfully is how we're going to need to as well. There were four main heresies that appeared in the church before the 4th century. So approximately before the year 300, four main heresies afflicting the church. And intriguingly, each of these heresies had to do either with the nature of God and or the extent of God's authoritative revelation. The nature of God and the extent of God's authoritative revelation. The first main heresy was monarchianism. Monarchianism. And in that term, you see the word monarch. What is a monarchy? Okay, it is a type of uh, rule by one head, a king, rule by one, rule by one king. Well, monarchianism is just that. It refers to a category of beliefs that deny the three persons of the Trinity, asserting instead that there is only one ruler, one God, the Father. And we see monarchianism emerge in Christian churches prominently in the second century. But different forms of monarchianism have appeared throughout the centuries of Christianity. The Trinity represents, of course, one of the divine tensions or seeming paradoxes of the scripture. 
a situation where we have the Bible asserting two seemingly contradictory ideas. There is only one God that is emphatic from the Bible. Yet the Bible also emphatically proclaims that the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. Fully. God is one. But God is three. A man in his pride and fleshiness, he does not like these kinds of tensions in the Bible. And he often wants to resolve them somehow by rational explanation, rather than accept by faith what the scripture says. Monarchianism is an effort to resolve the tension of the Trinity by saying, there is no Trinity. It's just one God, one ruler. And you might ask, well, how do Monarchians deal with the obvious deity of Jesus and the Holy Spirit? Well, there are two main ways that Christians, professing Christians anyways, in the second and third century explained away the Trinity. And they were adoptionism and sabellianism. I'll explain each of those. Adoptionism is the belief that Jesus was not originally God, but he became God, or a God. He became the Son of God by adoption. Those subscribing to this view pick up on statements in the New Testament about God begetting his Son, or about Jesus being exalted. And people were thinking, if Jesus were already God, he wouldn't need to be begotten or exalted. Therefore, Jesus must not have always been God. He became God. They see the moment, some moment during his ministry, either his baptism or his resurrection or his ascension, as the moment that Jesus became God. Now, this view obviously denies the virgin birth, since Jesus would have just been a man at that point, and it makes Jesus less than the Father. He's just an exalted created being, like a demigod or a super-glorified man. Now that's adoptionism. Sabellianism sought to explain away the Trinity in a different way. Now you might know Sabellianism by another name, modalism. Those are two words for the same idea. What is modalism? That's right, yes. So Glenda was explaining. Modalism is that there's one God who, who just appears in different aspects or different forms at different times, different modes. And the name Sibelianism, that's the way it was known in the early church, it comes from the movement's founder, a man named Sibelius, who was a third century priest or presbyter. Elders kind of changed in the way that they were viewed over time. Presbyters ended up being called priests. Sibelius was one of those guys. In the Sibelian or modalist point of view, God primarily manifests himself as the Father in the Old Testament, as the Son in the Gospels, and as the Holy Spirit after Christ's ascension. God was just putting on different masks, as it were. These are all really the same person, just different costumes. Now, Sibelianism seemingly allows believers to affirm that Jesus and the Holy Spirit are both God while nonetheless affirming that there is only one God, and even only one person in God. But despite monarchism's attempts to reconcile the Trinity by adoptionism or Sibelianism, what is the fundamental problem with both of these views? And why is that a problem? One person and not three. That's not what the Bible teaches. <laughs> That's the main problem. This is not biblical. Always remember when dealing with heresy, and you're going to hear this again and again today, we have to go back and see what do the scriptures actually say. Adoptionism and saying that Jesus only became God at some point during his ministry, it doesn't line up with statements of scripture like John 8:58. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. John 17, 5, Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Or going back to the Old Testament, Isaiah 9, 6, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. So adoptionism goes against the scripture. Meanwhile, Sibelianism, in saying that God is only one form at a time, 
it makes Jesus ridiculously pray to himself throughout his time on earth. Even though Jesus says he's praying to the Father who's in heaven, he even looks up to heaven at different times. Just all an act? Sibelianism also cannot explain what takes place at Jesus' baptism. Matthew 3, verses 16 to 17. The Son comes up from the water, the Spirit descends upon the Son, and the Father speaks from heaven. How can all those things be happening at the same time if it's just one person? Sibelianism also makes certain verses no longer straightforward or accurate, like Jesus saying he goes to sit at the Father's right hand. That makes no sense in the Sibelian view. So note this. The Trinity, despite what skeptics and some secular authors assert, is not something that was invented later at the Council of Nicaea in 325, in the 4th century. No. Our church fathers, our early church fathers, were adamant about Jesus being God and the Trinity being true according to the scriptures even before that time. We hear statements like this one from Tertullian in the 2nd century, early 2nd century, or I'm sorry, late 2nd century, going into the 3rd. He says, quote, All the scriptures attest the clear existence of and distinction in the persons of the Trinity. And that's from his work against Praxius. Tertullian, by the way, is the Latin writer who coins our word, Trinity. He may have come up with a word to capture what the scripture says, but it was already there. It was obvious to Tertullian and the other church fathers that the Trinity is true because it's in the Bible. Now, that being said, there is some debate about how much monarchianism took root in the church. It's a little hard to tell. Because Tertullian writes what he does against Praxius, he seems to indicate that a large number of Christians were drawn away into this heretical teaching. He felt particularly compelled to write against it. He saw it as a dangerous movement. These early monarchian beliefs, these early monarchian uh, movements, they would mostly peter out by the end of the 4th century. Sabellianism, adoptionism. Why? Well, because it became illegal to teach them. But monarchian ideas would come back in a different form in the 4th century, and that's Arianism. Talk more about that. Of course, monarchianism would also come back in Islam in the 7th century. Many early Christians actually saw Islam as a Christian cult when it first arrived. And of course, monarchianism still survives today among Unitarians, Oneness Pentecostals, and what famous Christian cult? The Jehovah Witnesses. They say the same thing as the early monarchians. A second major heresy in the early centuries of the church was Ebionism. Number two, Ebionism. Now the names Ebionism and Ebionite, they do not come from the movement itself. They were actually labels given to the movement by an opponent, by the second century church father Irenaeus of Lyon. Ebionism comes from a word meaning poor, perhaps because the Ebionites characterized themselves as poor or took vows of poverty. But Irenaeus probably uses that label for them sarcastically, meaning that these persons were poor in doctrine or poor when it comes to the riches of salvation. Who were the Ebionites? Well, the Ebionites were basically the early church version of the Judaizers. Now, who were the Judaizers? Yes, yeah, Steve. That's exactly it. If you look to the book of Acts or you look to Galatians, this was a group in the New Testament church, mostly former Jews and Pharisees, who said that Christians, especially Gentiles, they must be circumcised and keep the law of Moses in order to be saved. This was the Judaizers. And Steve mentioned Acts 15. That's the when the Jerusalem council takes place and meets to settle the question of whether Gentiles indeed need to keep the ceremonial law, basically become Jews in order to be saved, in order to be right with God. And what was the council's determination? Things strangled from immorality 
And uh, there was a fourth one, which I forget. But yes, the council determined, no, Gentiles do not need to become Jews. They do not need to keep the ceremonial law, but they should be sensitive to certain uh, uh, Jewish preferences. Things strangled, things uh, blood, things sacrificed to idols, I think was the fourth one, and then from immorality. Now, this decision, it was pretty obvious and authoritative, It unfortunately didn't stop the early Judaizers from continuing to assert among various congregations of believers the opposite of what the apostles determined. They said, you still need to keep the law, the Mosaic law, to be saved. And this is why, most likely, we get the book of Galatians from Paul. He sends it back to some of the churches he founded because the Judaizers had come through and were upsetting the faith of many. Well, the Ebionites in the 2nd and 3rd centuries, they're just the relentless Judaizers in a new form. According to Irenaeus in his work against heresies, the Ebionites taught that submission to the Mosaic law was mandatory for Christians. They added to that that Jesus was not God. He was a created being. He became the Son of God at his baptism. Hey, it's adoptionism again. Makes sense if you are so emphatic on the Mosaic Law, which emphasizes monotheism, you have a tendency to be hostile to the Trinity. They also taught that Paul was an apostate apostle, which again, kind of makes sense, at least in their view, because Paul's writings particularly contradict the Ebionites' Judaizing principles. So by rejecting Paul, you get rid of all those thorny things that Paul says against your movement. This does mean, though, that you reject much of the New Testament. The Ebionites apparently clung particularly to the Gospel of Matthew, but in an altered form. So how do you combat a heresy like Ebionism? Same thing as with Monarchianism. You go back to the Scriptures. And what do the Scriptures say? Well, first of all, those who were relying on the scriptures had to call out the Abionites for not submitting to God's ordained apostle, Paul. The churches recognized him appropriately as a spokesman of God. The Abionites needed to as well. But also, like the Jerusalem Council, early Christians responding to the Abionites, they contended that what Paul presented in his letters was entirely consistent with the Old Testament. Salvation has never been by the works of the law, It has always been by faith. And who's one of the clearest examples of that in the Old Testament? Abraham, which is why he's referred to multiple times in the New Testament as an example of faith. Don't have time to read it in class today, but you can look up Justin Martyr's Dialogue with Trifo. That's Justin Martyr's Dialogue with Trifo for an excellent presentation for why Christians do not need to keep the Old Testament ceremonial law. It was being proclaimed even in the second century, We are to do the same today. Now, like monarchianism, the Judaizing, Ebion heresy, it survives today. Where? In at least two very obvious places, Seventh-day Adventism, they very explicitly say that Christians need to keep the law, Sabbath especially, and uh, food laws. The Hebrew Roots Movement, and I'd say even Roman Catholicism to some extent, with its emphasis on externals and rituals. We must particularly beware that there will be an incessant temptation towards legalism and externalism in the Christian church, either by using the Old Testament law or man-made tradition. There's a tendency to make obedience an external matter to make us focus on rituals. Why is this? Well, when people can focus on external works and rituals, then they can really exalt themselves because they see themselves as fulfilling the law and earning their own righteousness, which was the same as the Pharisees did in Jesus' day. But Jesus strongly confronted the Pharisees and this mindset in the Gospels by clarifying that really keeping the law starts in the heart. And that's where we all utterly fail. You can say, hey, I was baptized, I did this ritual, I did this prayer. But when God says, but you are to love the Lord with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, 
every moment of your life, no one can perfectly keep that law. You cannot earn your salvation. Yeah, go ahead, Mark. The Hebrew Roots Movement. Yeah, in many ways, very similar to Seventh-day Adventism, um, emphasizing we need to go back, we need to rediscover the Hebrew roots of Christianity, and basically it's just the Old Testament superimposed on top of Christianity. You need to keep the Old Testament law. Unfortunately, some of the Hebrew roots persons apparently will call themselves Messianic Jews, or, or a similar term, which can kind of be confusing when we think about Jews for Jesus and other organizations where they also adopt a similar label. Oh, I'm a completed Jew, or I'm a, I'm a Messianic Jew. They're actually different. Hebrew roots think of that in a very different way than some Christian Jews do. But yeah, Hebrew roots is another example. Ebionism, Judea, uh, Judea, Judaizing, it lives on, and it's going to come back again. So we have to be prepared to respond with the scriptures. A third main heresy in the early church was number three, Montanism. Montanism appearing in the mid-second century. I mentioned this heresy on the first day of class, if you were part of our group then. What were the Montanists all about? New prophecy. That's actually what they called their movement. The name Montanism, as others use it, it came from the movement's founder, Montanus. He was a convert from the countryside of Asia Minor in the second century, and some say he was a former pagan priest. Montanus asserted that the miraculous gifts of the New Testament were still in operation in the Christian church, especially prophecy. Montanus actually saw himself as the fulfillment of John 14:16, where Jesus prophesied to send a helper and comforter, the paraclete. Montanus said, that's me. I am the Holy Spirit's chosen vessel. I am the organ of the paraclete. But Montanus wasn't alone. He had with him two prophetesses, Priscilla and Maximilia, and they formed the backbone of this new prophecy movement. But they, even those three were not the only ones supposedly empowered by the Spirit. They encouraged all their followers to pursue miraculous gifts. This is why, by the way, if you read the Acts of Perpetua and Felicitas, which I recommended to you in the previous class, you will hear in that martyrdom account about many Christians having visions of the future or receiving supernatural messages of comfort from God or miraculously enduring suffering. You say, well, why is that? Well, that's because Perpetua and the martyrs mentioned with her were Montanists. They were Montanists. And so they expected and they embraced prophetic dreams and miracles. Now, what were Montanists usually prophesying about? Mostly the end of the world and the coming kingdom of Jesus. Uh, Montanists were definitely premillennial. They fully expected that Jesus kingdom would arrive during their lifetimes, or they, they also expected that Jesus' kingdom would arrive during their lifetimes in a visible earthly way. They also prophesied about persecution and martyrdom and allegedly received messages from the Holy Spirit about various fasts and other duties that Christians were supposed to fulfill. Now, when it came to the gospel of salvation and most Christian doctrines, the Montanists were actually quite right on. They would be considered orthodox in many ways, though there was a group of Sibelian Montanists. However, there were several aspects of the Montanist movement that other Christians at the time found very concerning, and for good reason. First, the Montanists claimed that their prophecies were binding on all Christians. If you didn't submit to the word of Montanists and his prophetesses, you were considered to be in sin in their eyes and in rebellion against God. Montanists actually characterized themselves as spiritual people, while those outside their movement were considered carnal people, even prophet killers. So there's that. And then second, Montanist prophecy looked very different than prophecy seen in the Bible. People described the Montanist prophets as if they were spiritually possessed 
These prophets lost all self-control and spoke in a state of trance-like ecstasy. And third, the Montanus prophecies were not always accurate. For example, Maximilia once prophesied, After me, there will be no more prophecy but the end. That is the end of the world. Well, Maximilia died in A.D. 179, and the world did not end. So errors like this were troubling for Christians. How were Christians supposed to submit the authority of these prophets and prophetesses when they weren't always right? Fourth, Montanists asserted that anyone could be leaders, elders, and prophets in the church, including women. But that's somewhat logically consistent, isn't it? If you think the Spirit could be speaking authoritatively through anyone, then it doesn't matter when you're looking for leaders and teachers in the church. It doesn't matter what that person's gender is or whether that person has the biblical qualifications of being an elder or not. Finally, the Montanists were extremely ascetic. They were very strict about self-discipline, denying worldly pleasures, and embracing suffering. For example, they denied art as vain and sinful. Women were not allowed to wear jewelry. Virgins had to wear veils. Marriage was discouraged. Remarriage was forbidden, even after the death of a spouse. And the Montanists proclaimed frequent fasts from eating and drinking. Furthermore, the Montanists were obsessed with martyrdom. They saw all attempts to avoid persecution and or martyrdom as sinful compromise and a denial of Christ. And such compromises were never allowed to be part of the Montanist fellowship. Now, at first glance, the Montanist's extreme devotion and emphasis on spirituality seems admirable, especially in the context of, as we've seen in other lessons, worldliness, increasing worldliness and compromise appearing in the church. While the Christians not standing up under persecution, the Montanists clearly did. And this is probably why our defender of the faith, Tertullian, later became a Montanist, or at least strongly supported them. But were the Montanists right? Was God really bringing new prophecy and authoritative revelation through them? Well, most certainly not. Again, because of what the scriptures say. Most Montanist prophets showed themselves to be false in multiple ways that the scripture has already told us to watch out for. They were not always correct in their prophecies. And Deuteronomy 18.22 says that if a prophecy doesn't come true, the person who spoke it is not God's prophet. The prophetic method of the Montanists was not biblical. Those who prophesy in the Bible do not do so in a way where they act possessed or in ecstasy. It's actually quite sober. Ecstatic prophecy has its roots in paganism, not the Bible. And the Montanist founder, Montanist himself, he twisted scripture, obviously, to justify his own prophecy. John 14, 16 is clearly not about Montanists, but it is about the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost in Acts 2. There were other issues, biblically, with the practices and rigorous restrictions of the Montanists, what they imposed on themselves. But the most fundamental error of this movement is the idea that there can be new revelation from God outside the scriptures. That's not true for the church age. Now, don't misunderstand. I don't think that, or I do think that many of the Montanists were true Christians. This is a little different from the Ebionites and the Monarchianists. And this, that's why I still recommend that you read that martyrdom account of Perpetua and Facilitas. Still, there were serious dangers and problems in this idea of new prophecy from God. And we'll say more about that with the next heresy in just a moment. Now, do we see Montanism in a, another form today? Say that again. Oh, right, the New Apostolic Reformation. That's right. The Charismatic and Pentecostal movements, it's just Montanism again. And we see, the, uh, we see many of the same characteristics any of the same errors and compromises, uh, like with female authority in the church or ecstatic prophecy, it's the same things. They, they've come back. Now, 
of course, like the Montanists, not everyone in today's continuationist movements, charismaticism, Pentecostalism, and etc., they don't all believe the same thing. You have to allow that there are some differences between them. But what unites them is that the belief that the miraculous gifts in the New Testament, especially prophecy, they continue in God's church. This is a fundamental error. And it unfortunately has arisen again and again in church history, and it will in the future if Christ tarries. People like Luther and Spurgeon, they were warning people in their own times not to trust in new supposed revelation from God not to insist that they had new prophecy. So we have to do the same, really. What happened to Montanists in the early church? Well, many Christians condemned and excommunicated them as divisive heretics. You guys are just causing division, just saying everybody who doesn't follow your prophecy is in sin. We can't fellowship with you. Now, not everybody condemned them, but many did. Many Christians, though, joined their movement. They were attracted to the disciplined lifestyle and even showy spirituality of the Montanists. Still, Montanist numbers eventually dwindled, especially when Christian Roman emperors enacted laws against them. So you have that kind of that double-edged sword where if there's a, an emperor who's right on doctrinally, he can be helpful for getting rid of heresies, but when he goes astray, then he hurts the church. Montanism mostly petered out by the 4th century, but an offshoot of the Montanists, the Tertullianists, it would last till about the 6th century. So we've seen three of the main early heresies. The Montanists in many ways were a radical group with their claims of new authoritative revelation. But Montanism looks extremely conservative compared to the last heresy we'll talk about today, and that is Gnosticism. Gnosticism. Now, if you've been following Pastor Bobby's Colossians series, you already know a little bit about Gnosticism. The name Gnosticism has the root word gnosis in it, referring to what? Knowledge. Knowledge. Gnosticism, it takes many, many forms. So if you're going to say, this is what Gnosticism believes, well, actually, there's a lot of variety under that category. But there are two core components to pretty much any branch of Gnosticism. That is... First of all, secret knowledge. In Gnosticism, there is a secret knowledge which you need to learn for salvation from an expert teacher who will either share his enlightened knowledge with you or show you how you can discover that knowledge yourself. You can become enlightened. So that's one core belief. And the other is that the material is evil and the spiritual is good. Material world is evil and inferior. The spiritual world is good and superior. That didn't originate with Gnosticism. That was an idea that appeared in Greco-Roman philosophy in the earlier centuries, but it certainly was taken up by Gnosticism. Now, the secret knowledge in Gnosticism is meant to help you transcend the physical world and reach the spiritual. And this is what salvation is all about in Gnosticism. It is not about the redemption of your soul from sin through Christ's blood. It is about the escape of your soul from this evil physical plane of existence and the transport of your soul to the better spiritual world. So to the Gnostics, life is not about God's redemption plan. It is about the struggle of the material versus the immaterial. Matter versus spirit. Gnosticism's view of God is totally mythological. Again, there's a lot of variety, but here's the consistent part. Gnostics do acknowledge a supreme divine being, usually unknowable, some unknowable supreme deity. But there are also many lower emanations from that deity. In other words, there is a supreme God and many lesser gods that have been reproduced from this supreme God. Now, that may sound completely ridiculous to us as a Christian belief. But remember that we live in a different time. As has been pointed out by others before, there are surely going to be, in the decades and centuries of those who come after us, many who look back at some of what we believe today, and they say, I can't believe they believed that. Why did they compromise in that way? Well, it was true in that time, too. Despite how Gnosticism sounds to us, the appeal was definitely there in the early centuries. You 
the Gnostics would tell you, can find out the real secrets to the universe. You can become one of the truly enlightened ones. You will no longer walk as so many of the others in ignorance. You can know the secrets. You can join the enlightened society. You can transcend. Actually, many cults basically make the same appeal today. The Gnosticism doesn't officially appear until the second century, and this is pretty well documented. Elements of it, some ideas of Gnosticism appeared, appeared apparently even in New Testament times, prompting, for example, different statements in the New Testament, including this one from John in 1 John. In 1 John 4, verses 2 and 3, 1 John 4, 2 and 3, the Apostle John writes this, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of Antichrist, of which you have heard that it is coming, and now it is already in the world. So if you were listening closely to that verse, those verses, what were some people apparently denying about Christ in the New Testament church? That's right, that he had a body that he was a physical person, that he came in the flesh. There's a name for this belief. It's called docetism. I've heard people call it docetism, but apparently it's pronounced docetism. Docetism is the idea that Christ didn't actually have a body, a physical body, but only the appearance of a body. This would be a staple belief of Gnosticism. Because he can't. If, if he has a physical body, then he's got evil and inferiority attached to him, and we can't have that in our religion. As just one example of the type of belief in Gnosticism, let me share with you about the Valentinian Gnostics, or Valentinianism. We know a lot about this group because this was the group that Irenaeus specifically wrote against in another place in his work, Against Heresies. And using Irenaeus, historian Brian Litvin summarizes Valentinian belief in his book, Getting to Know the Church Fathers. Here's a few paragraphs about the Valentinian Gnostics from Brian Litvin. Valentinian Gnostics believed in a heavenly fullness, which consisted of 30 angelic beings called aeons. The aeons always came in male-female pairs. These conjugal pairs emitted lower aeons, and the last of these emissions was Sophia wisdom. But Sophia became passionate and wickedly longed for the highest father apart from her own consort. Though she, was, though she was eventually healed from her grievous action, her evil thought, which had given rise to her sin, was cast out of the fullness like an aborted fetus. This shapeless thought took on a personified form named Mother Akamoth. She was in a hopeless state until the Christ came to her and enabled Akamoth to bring forth substances from within herself. One of the beings she brought forth was the Demiurge. That's the Greek word that means craftsman. He was the ignorant creator of the entire physical world in which we live. In many Gnostic accounts, the Demiurge was equated with Yahweh, the Jewish God of the Old Testament, who foolishly thought he was the one true God. Only the enlightened Gnostics knew he was actually a corrupted being far inferior to the goddess Sophia. In order to give secret wisdom to the spiritual Gnostics, the Demiurge, Yahweh, is said to have given birth to a son who was, fulfilled, who was filled with the spiritual seed of Mother Akamoth. This son was the Christ who passed through Mary without taking a body from her. He was just like water flowing through a tube. The Gnostics often said the Christ inhabited the body of the man, Jesus of Nazareth, but his body was not made of real flesh. The Docetic Christ, who possessed the illusion of the body, came into the world to teach spiritual precepts that only the enlightened Gnostics would be able to comprehend. Through the purging action of this revealed knowledge, the Gnostics would eventually make their way into the fullness as purified spirits. Now, does that sound whack or what? Yet the sad truth is, this was being preached in the name of Christ. 
and many people believed in it. Rightly do the church fathers quote 1 Timothy 6 when dealing with heresies like this. This is that which is falsely called knowledge. Another form of Gnosticism was something called Manichaeism. And if you know a little bit about early church history, you may have heard of this branch before because a famous 4th century church father was a former Manichaean. Anybody know who that was? Augustine. Augustine actually was a former Manichaean. Now, where did this come from? This heresy developed from a man named Mani, or Manichaeus in Latin. He was a Persian in the second century who mixed Christian, Gnostic, Zoroastrian, and even Buddhist ideas. Mani, similar to Montanus, he claimed to be the paraclete and to be the last of a series of prophets that included Buddha, Zoroaster, and Jesus. What came out of Manny's mind, which he ascribed to a supernatural spirit called the twin, he wrote down as scripture. Does this sound like anything else you've heard of? This scripture teaches a belief which sounds like something you might see in a fantasy movie today. Manny taught, there's a spiritual world of light and a material world of darkness that are at war. God is the eternal ruler of the kingdom of light, who is powerful but not omnipotent. And Satan is the semi-eternal ruler of the kingdom of darkness. Each ruler has a number of other deities with them in their realms. And once upon a time, the kingdom of darkness attacked the kingdom of light, resulting in the temporary universe in which humans live. Humans live. And this is a universe with light and dark mixed into the earth and in each person. Salvation then for the Manichaeans is God, through Jesus, trying to communicate to man about the light within them and show them the way into the kingdom of light. While Satan and his demons, they're trying to consume the light within each person and prevent them from going to the world of light. Now it is knowledge of this inner light, not repentance, that brings a person to salvation. The convert needs to identify with his soul, with the portion of himself that is light, to escape the darkness of mere matter. Now Manichaeism gained many followers and lasted, especially in the East, even towards Asia, beyond the 7th century. In my last slide here, I actually have a picture of a Manichaean temple that still exists today in China. One of Manichaeism's, oh, I should also say, the rise of, Idlo- is, the rise of Islam did much to squelch this heresy. <laughs> they didn't like that spreading around. One of Manichaeism's chief attractions was its explanation for the problem of evil. And this is something that people still wrestle with today. We actually were just talking about it in our men's group last Tuesday. In the Manichaean view, evil does not come from God because God is not omnipotent. Evil comes from Satan, who seems to have a power almost equal to God. Manichaean converts joined one of two groups. They're like different tiers of devotion. You could be one of the elect, and they adhere to strict lives of self-denial, or you could be one of the hearers who didn't live that strict life, but who supported the elect with money and services, and therefore they got some spiritual benefit. Augustine, he became a hearer of the Manichaeans for a little while. And like other Gnostic groups, the Manichaeans also embraced docetism. They said Jesus did not have a real body, since that would imply some darkness within Christ, He only had the appearance of a body. Now, there's one other type of spin-off of Gnosticism that I'll mention to you before we talk about how Christians responded to Gnosticism, and that's Marcionism. Not to be confused at all with Marcy, our dear brother in this church. Nothing to do with him. This is Marcionism. Emerges in the second century. Now, there's some debate as to whether Marcionism is actually Gnostic, since Marcion, the founder, only used scripture to come up with his belief system. He did not assert some other supernatural revelation or outside authoritative source. 
Nevertheless, his teaching sounds a lot like Gnosticism, and it may have been influenced by it. Marcion was a wealthy ship owner from Asia Minor and the son of a bishop, son of a leader in the church. In his study, Marcion's, of the Old Testament, in the apostolic letters, he got caught up in what he saw as profound differences in how God presents himself in the different testaments. And this question would surely sound like some of what people say today. Why is the God of the Old Testament so angry? Why are his laws so harsh? How could he order for whole peoples to be destroyed? In contrast, the God of the New Testament seems to be so loving, forgiving, saving, not judging. And Jesus' teaching in the New Testament seems incompatible with the Old Testament law. How can this be the same God? Now, unfortunately, Marcion, like many today, fails to notice that the, we actually see many times in the Old Testament the patient compassion of God, and we also see in the New Testament the holy wrath and jealousy of Jesus and the Father. Marcion didn't pay attention to that. He instead came up with a heretical answer to his questioning, and can you guess what his solution was? Not joined together, and not that God changed, we actually have two different gods. The gods of the Old Testament and the New Testament must be different. This is what Marcion taught. There are actually two gods in the Bible. There's the jealous, inconsistent, angry tyrant of the Old Testament, who was the demiurge, who created our flawed world. And then there's the true, unknown God of the New Testament, who is all righteousness and love, who sent Jesus to deliver mankind, not from sin, but from the cruel God of the Old Testament. Now this viewpoint is immediately problematic, isn't it? Because the New Testament, Jesus himself, speaks very positively about the God of the Old Testament. So if you're Marcion and you're convinced of your belief, what do you do? Edit the New Testament. Change the Bible. In a strange coincidence, Marcion does the same yet opposite thing as the Ebionites. Marcion rejects all of the New Testament except the writings of Paul. Some of the writings of Paul. Namely, ten of his epistles and an edited version of Luke. So Marcion saw Paul as the only true apostle. It's kind of hilarious, but sad at the same time. Ebionites thought Paul was an apostate. Marcion saw him as the only faithful apostle. Now, how did Marcion decide that Paul's scriptures were right and all the others weren't? Well, it pretty much just came down to his own reasoning and analysis. If a New Testament passage said something positive about the God of the Old Testament or suggested that Christianity is the culmination of Old Testament Judaism, well, obviously that's wrong. That has to go. That was basically Marcion's mindset. If Ebionism is Christianity with a pro-Jewish spin, Marcionism is Christianity with an anti-Jewish spin. And it's no accident that Marcionism began, or Marcion began to spread his teaching around 140, AD 140. That is, right after the Jewish Bar Kokhba revolt, where the Romans exterminated and exiled most Jews in Palestine. Now, Marcion was condemned as a heretic, excommunicated by the main Christian church, even excommunicated by his own father, the bishop. But Marcionism would stick around in Europe for a few hundred years, and even longer outside Europe. Now let's consider each of these varieties of Gnostic belief. How does the true church respond to the Gnostics, to those who say, we have the secret knowledge, we know who God really is, we know how to transcend? You go back to Scripture. You go back to Scripture. And specifically, what truth from the Scriptures? That the Bible, culminating in the New Testament, is the only trustworthy source of knowledge. It is the only authoritative source of knowledge. In Galatians 1, 6-8, Paul warns that Christians ought not to listen to any gospel, any supposed revelation from God that is different from what the apostles preached. 
In fact, even if it's brought by an angel, don't even listen to it. Let that person be anathema, damned to hell. And this is basically what Irenaeus of Lyon wrote against the Gnostics. This is again from Against Heresies. Irenaeus says, We have received the disposition of our salvation by no others, but by those by whom the gospel came to us, which they then preached, and afterward by God's will were delivered to us in the scriptures to be the pillar and ground of our faith. The authoritative revelation was completed by the apostles, handed down to us in the scriptures, and that is what we are to hold to, nothing beyond that. So basically the early church, and even we today would say, should say, I don't care where else you think you got your secret knowledge from. It's false. It's not authoritative. It's not true knowledge. It is your own vain and even soul-damning imaginings. Really, if you give up the scriptures, if you add to them, if you take away from them, then you are rebelling against Christ's own climactic revelation, the revelation of himself, his revelation. You are also rebelling against the authority that he gave to his apostles to declare and further explain that revelation. Hebrews 2, 1-4 warns that we better pay attention to the Son's revelation. We dare not drift away from it, lest we be judged for neglecting so great a salvation. Paul further mentions in Ephesians 2.20 that the apostles and prophets fulfilled their role as foundation layers for the church by their teaching. With that foundation fully laid, there are no new apostles or prophets in the church, in the church age, to bring revelation. No, not Muhammad. No, not Zoroaster. Not Manny. Not Marcion. No one is going to complete God's revelation because it has been, uh, it has already been laid down. We don't need another foundation. We don't need a new foundation. It's already been laid by Jesus through his apostles and prophets. Now, as spectacularly ridiculous as these different Gnostic heresies are, does Gnosticism live on today in Christianity? It does. It does. How? Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, I think that's actually a good insight, and not just with certain ideas about social justice, but even uh, regarding soul care via psychology and psychiatry. Oh, no, you don't really know how to care, about the, care for the soul. The scriptures are not enough. You need our expert knowledge. And we're the only ones who really understand. So with social justice or with ideas about racism or with ideas about uh, psychology and psychiatry, it is often presented as if it were Gnostic knowledge. So I do think that is one way we see that this kind of thinking in the church. And of course, Christians are being strongly pressured to integrate this, integrate this into Christianity. I would say really anybody who claims to be the prophet or authoritative teacher with secret knowledge about God, he sets himself up just like these Gnostics. And we do see that today. So thus standing condemned along with the Gnostics are many in the charismatic movement, many in the word of faith movement, many Seventh-day Adventist prophets, Roman Catholic popes, Muhammad. Yet the clearest revival of Christian Gnostic teaching today, I would say, is a certain Christian cult with authoritative scriptures outside the Bible and an absolutely bizarre cosmology. What cult is that? Mormonism. If you want to understand what Mormonism is, it's basically revived Christian Gnosticism. I mean, you've got the mythology, you've got the extra scriptures, you've got Joseph Smith saying, I am the last prophet of God, I'm the one who's going to fix everything that got corrupted in Christian teaching. It's just Gnosticism reborn. You won't, of course, find there are more bizarre teachings on their website or in the mouths of their evangelists when they come to your door. But if you dig a little deeper... If you just read, for example, Joseph Smith's sermon, known as King Philot's, 
King Follett's discourse, you will hear how plainly Gnostic Mormonism is. He says in that sermon, nobody can teach you any more, no one can teach you the truth better than I have. And you must learn how you can become gods yourselves. It's bizarre. So we've seen the more, four main types of heresies that assaulted the early church. Monarchism, saying that there's only one God and no trinity. Ebionism, saying Christians must keep the Old Testament law. Montanism, saying the New Testament sign gifts have returned, especially new prophecy. And Gnosticism, saying that the secret knowledge from an enlightened teacher will deliver you from this evil material world to the immaterial world of the spirit. But before we end, I do want us to ask... I do want to ask and answer, what was the ultimate effect of these heresies on the early church? And there are basically two. There's that Manichaean temple. First effect is that many were led astray. It's hard to know how many, but understand that these heresies were not niche movements. The reason we know about them today is because they were widespread. Tertullian indicates that there are many who fell into the Monarchian error, and some historians have claimed that Manichaeism, that version of Gnosticism, was actually Christianity's main rival in the 3rd and 4th centuries. And it looked for a while, we didn't know which one of those was going to win, especially in the East. So these facts should sober our enthusiasm a little bit when we talk about the spread of Christianity in the Roman Empire and beyond. Some of what actually spread was not true Christianity and some of the Christian martyrs that we otherwise would want to admire and imitate, they're actually heretics. This is all the more tragic when we realize that all of these errors, except for maybe Montanism, they proclaimed a different message of salvation, which meant that their adherents, if they died believing in it, they went to hell. They were damned for their belief in these heresies. They were deceived but they were also accountable. In one sense, they wanted the deception. If they did not want the true God, or else, as he promises in the scriptures, he would have been found by them. So these heresies were, on the one hand, deadly to men's souls and hurtful to the church in the first three centuries. Yet, these heresies also had the, the result of strengthening the true church. You say, how could that be? Well, think about your own experience. When someone presents to you an idea that you don't think is biblical, but you're not quite sure how to respond, what do you end up doing? You go and do research. You go and search the scriptures. And what is the result? You end up understanding the scriptures better, you become more confident in your convictions, and you become more articulate in defending Christianity. And this is exactly the result in the early church. As people challenged Christians on the Trinity, Old Testament law, and the canon of the Bible itself, early Christians and church leaders, they were forced to think more critically about these issues and forced to go back to the scriptures. What really did belong as God's set or canon of revelation? How do you biblically explain Jesus' relationship with the Father? Heresy often provides the impetus to define more clearly what the Bible actually says. Not to come up with new beliefs in response to heresy, but to clarify what the Bible has already said. And this is what we see in the early church, and this is what we would see in the centuries after the, or the, the most early church. These concepts would show up in different church councils, and today we still appreciate those councils' clear statements on biblical theology. These councils really were responding to different heretical movements at the times that were affecting the church. So again, I say heresy often brings a clearer and more confident proclamation of the truth. And that's true with even the things that we're dealing with today, or it should be. God, as he always does, uses something meant for evil for his own glorious purpose. Heresy ultimately resulted in the strengthening of the true church, and we're still benefiting from that positive result of early heresies today. Now next time, we'll take a look at how the early church came to consensus about the biblical canon, what really belongs in the Bible. And we'll also talk about certain doc doctrinal proclamations that were published via ecumenical church councils. So, not quite done with heresies, but we're going to focus more on canon and councils next time. All right. We're out of time. Let's close in prayer.
Lord, we thank you for our brothers and sisters of the past who stood up for your truth and who remind us, who teach us once again that we must hold fast to your scriptures. We must hold fast to what you gave us through the prophets and apostles. We are not to look for new revelation. We are not to contradict this revelation with man's ideas. We are to hold fast to it and proclaim it and defend it. With you, God, with your power and your wisdom, we can do this. Lord, help us not to drift away. Help us to remain confident in your sufficient and supreme word. In Jesus' name, amen.